All right, as I said, we'll continuing on here in Matthew 26, and um, we're in verses 26 to 30. I was going through those last week and kind of rushed at the end, um, detrimentally. I don't think there was any reason to do that, so I decided to go back and um, look at those look at those four really main ideas of communion that are in modern Christianity, actually historic Christianity. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and review these again, and then we'll go forward. We'll look at uh, Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, and then the prayer in the garden. So we'll go ahead and get started with this these communion. So as I said last week, there's, from what I can identify, really four main ideas of Christian communion. You have the Roman Catholic view, you have consubstantiation, you have Calvin's view, and then you have Zwingli's view. And really, these four represent the four main ideologies of communion throughout Christendom. And the first one up on the board is, I don't know if you guys can see that, but uh, the purple is actually a better color. But transubstantiation, and I think most of us in here are familiar with that word is, if you may not know exactly what the meaning is, but that is the majority Roman Catholic view of communion. And you have this word right here, trans, is actually in our culture, we're all familiar with the word trans, you know, transforming, transitioning into something else. But that's what the Roman Catholic view of communion is. Transubstantiation, something transforming or transitioning into something else. And I thought the best way for me to explain this is to actually read from some Roman Catholic sources and theologians. What a better source than actually from the mouth of those individuals themselves. As I said last week, if you don't remember, really transubstantiation was officiated or official at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 uh, A.D. Uh, There was inklings of it beforehand, three or four hundred years beforehand, but and that council the Roman Catholic Church made it an official dogma or doctrine. And then about 300 years later, at the Council of Trent, they reaffirmed it again. Well, listen just a couple of these things. I'm just going to read these and uh, let them play through your mind. And here is the first source. All that substance sustains the things which inherit in it, we call the technical name of accidents. We cannot touch, see, taste, feel, measure, analyze, smell, or otherwise directly experience the substance. Only by knowing the accidents do we know it. So we sometimes call the accidents the appearances. So last week I talked about they make this differentiation between uh, the accidents and then what actually the body of Christ is in the communion. And really, one of the main theologians, Thomas Aquinas, was one of the... um, he, he was the Roman Catholics consider him the greatest theologian. They call him the Doctor Angelicus, and he made this differential by uh, the accidents. So really, what the accidents are are the underlying substance. And here's a great example of what they said with the accidents. They used a ball for an example, and this is how they explain how it transforms or transitions into the body of Christ. So let me read this. The reformers were united in opposing the official Roman Catholic view of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. That is transubstantiation. The Roman Catholics used Aristotelian philosophy for the backdrop of this view. Aristotle held that everything or substance consists of an essence and an accident. The accident 
of a substance are accessible to our five senses and can change without changing the substance. Here's an example. I know this is about 20,000 feet above our head, but here's an example to bring it back down to earth. For an example, consider a green ball. The greenness of the ball falls into the category of accidents and is not essential to the ballness. You can change the color to red and still have a ball because the essence of the ball remains the same. Accordingly, things such as texture, color, taste, and so forth are all accidents of the bread and the wine. Roman Catholics hold that in the Lord's Supper, the accidents of the bread and wine remain the same, while the invisible essence of those substances change into the body and the blood of Christ. To our senses, the elements of the bread and wine still look, taste, feel, and smell like bread and wine. But listen here, the elements and their essence are Christ, personally and physically. So I know that is a really broad and detailed explanation of transubstantiation, but in order to understand it, you have to understand the basis of their argument. Yes, the, the accidents or the underlying basic elements of the communion cracker and the wine stay the same to our touch, taste, and, and feel. That's why, you know, people, when they criticize, well, people with um, gluten allergies, you know, they really can't take the bread. I think they would agree with you with that. But they're saying the essence of it becomes the blood and the body of Christ. That's how they explain it. And uh, I listened to uh, the, the Thomistic Institute, which is um, a, a uh, individual sect, I think, in the Dominican order of the Roman Catholic uh, theologians and uh, priesthood. And they explained it this way. Interestingly enough, I always thought Roman Catholics, most of them are free will. But uh, this Thomistic Institute, uh, after the order of Thomas Aquinas, they are actually predestinarian. They hold that, you know, the people who are in heaven were predestined by God. So just kind of interesting uh, to think about. But this is still held by the majority of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if, if you're inside the Roman Catholic Church, if there's another idea of it. And I'm not 100% sure about the uh, Eastern Church, the Eastern uh, Catholic Church. I didn't go that far. But that's the, really the basic understanding of transubstantiation. It's actually the body and the blood of Christ. And they take this word in verse 26, take it, this is my body. They are taking it actually literal. And to kind of use a 20th century, it depends what your definition of is is. I guess that really comes down to what the communion debate is between these four viewpoints. It's what your definition of is is. And that's what we'll see here, these different interpretations between communion, really that word is uh, very important. So uh, that, that's just the basic transubstantiation. If you, have, if you want more detail, I mean, YouTube's full of sources. Uh, the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, that was written about 100 years ago. That was very beneficial in understanding their dogma and their view. But that's really uh, just a basic overview of transubstantiation. Now, there's three more, and these, yes, Correct. I think they say it's efficacious. Yep. Yep. Correct. 
It's a, it is. It's a faith plus work. So you have to have faith, but this is one of the works. I mean, I think if you uh, hear people say they were full of the sacraments at, at the end of their life, that's really, if you're full of the sacraments, that's a bonus. That is a better opportunity, a better chance to get into heaven. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Is it's not just communion, it's, it's a communion plus. It's, a, it's another work. It's a must in the Roman Catholic theology. And, yeah. Correct. Correct. I think the pro- mm-hmm. I think the proper term is once they consecrate it, once they bless it in the communion, they consecrate it. Then that's when it is turned into the body and the blood of Christ. So yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. He said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, instead of I. Yeah. But nonetheless, you see that this doctrine here, the Roman Catholic, and that, that's a big difference between this one and these three, is even though there's a big div- uh, uh, difference between these three, all three of them, as we'll see here in a second, will completely reject this one. Because this is a work, they will tell you that this is not a work. This is, you know, no, no benefit, really, I should say, to your salvation. There's no merit in the communion. Yes, our Lord commands it, but it doesn't get you any closer to heaven, unlike the Roman Catholic view, which most certainly would say that it is a requirement in order to get to heaven. So, yeah, thank you for those points. And, um, yeah, and if anyone has anything to say, please just raise your hand anytime. So then the next view is Martin Luther, is obviously he was a former Catholic monk. So in the 1500s, in the time of the Reformation, this communion was a very big debate. And uh, Luther did not hold to transubstantiation. And I wouldn't say that his view is one less. It's a huge step less. He is not saying that's meritorious, but what he calls is consubstantiation. So really, the three key words of Luther's view of communion in, is in, with, and under. So modern individual or modern churches who hold to the uh, Luther's view of uh, communion is the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, and the Episcopalian Church. So there are still individuals and groups of churches that hold to Luther's point of view. And this is uh, from the official Episcopalian Church website. And this is their explanation of consubstantiation. According to it, the substance of Christ's body exists together with the substance of bread, and in like manner the substance of his blood together with his substance of wine, hence the word consubstantiation. It teaches that after the consecration, the substance of the body and the blood of Christ and the substance of the bread and wine coexist in union with each other. So what they're saying, Luther is explaining that it's not actually turned into the body and the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation is completely rejected by Luther, but it exists in, with, and under the body of Christ. So there is still very great significance with Luther and his view with communion. Christ is present with it. He is not the bread and the wine, but he is present in, 
with and under the elements. And like I said, he completely rejects the transubstantiation notion of the Roman Catholic Church. But then the next two views of communion we have are of John Calvin and then Ulrich Zwingli. So we'll start with Calvin, and this is what Calvin says. This is from his Institutes. Calvin explains it in two ways, always affirming that it's a mystery. What Calvin says is, one, it could be that when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit raises up the church, so the church ascends to fellowship with Christ, communion with Christ who is in heaven. And then the second point is another possibility, he says, is that the Holy Spirit causes Christ to descend to fellowship and commune with the church as it celebrates the Lord's Supper. So just from a rational standpoint, as I, I do think what Calvin is believing and, and espousing here of his view of communion, I, I think it, it can make sense of that, yes, the Holy Spirit, as we're partaking in the act of communion, elevates, as it were, our hearts and our minds to be able really to focus in on Christ's sacrifice. You know, Christ does say, do this in remembrance of me, so that it may be that when we're partaking of the elements, the Holy Spirit you know, energizes or really rejuvenates our hearts and our minds so we can really hyper-focus of to what we are doing as we're partaking in the Lord's Supper. Or he also says that the Holy Spirit causes Christ to be more present or present when we're taking the communion elements. And I think really that's a, that's a real fair assessment of communion. And I, generally speaking, I, this is a very difficult subject. I think outright we can completely toss out the Roman Catholic view of of transubstantiation. I clearly don't think that's biblical. But the other three viewpoints is I think think we can understand how Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, how they arrived at their conclusions. I mean, I think a lot of us would agree that maybe Luther's is is a little too far, but Calvin and Zwingli's, I think, is is a pretty fair assessment of, of how communion is supposed to be. And then lastly, um, the Zwingli's viewpoint is really, it's a sign or a symbol. When the, the communion, when we're taking communion, communion, when Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, communion, kind of like baptism, baptism is a sign of, of our public confession of our faith. We are now in the body of Christ. I think Zwingli would say that communion is... Not simply, I wouldn't put that word simply, but it's a remembrance. It's a symbol of when we take communion, we're supposed to remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And let me go ahead and read to you his exact words. And Zwingli says, a sacrament is the sign of a holy thing. When I say the sacrament of the Lord's body, I am simply referring to that bread, which is the symbol of the body of Christ, who was put to death for our sakes. But the real body of Christ is the body which is seated at the right hand of God, and the sacraments of his body is the bread, and the sacrament of his blood is the wine, of which we partake with thanksgiving. Now the sign and the thing signified cannot be one and the same. Excuse me. Therefore, the sacrament of the body of Christ cannot be that of the body itself. So I... From my perspective, I think I can understand what Zwingli says or, or is saying here. I will say, I will say this, and I'm, I most certainly include myself when I say this with communion. 
is these three individuals took communion far more serious than we take communion. I think not only is this um, a retort on Bible chapel, and that includes myself, but as the Christian Protestant community as a whole, is we do not understand or take communion as seriously as we should. Even though Zwingli says it's simply a sign or a symbol, I think in a majority of Christian circles, he is still saying that communion is far more important than we take it. So we have communion today. I encourage you, I encourage myself, is when you are taking the bread and when you're taking the grape juice or the wine, is to really consider what those things stand for. The bread signifying Jesus Christ's broken body and the blood, or I'm sorry, the grape juice and the wine signifying the blood of Christ. What I do know is that we need to take the sacrament of communion far more serious than we do. And I say that, as I said before, I include myself. As when we're taking communion today, really try to reflect and understand what those elements mean. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And as we see throughout this story, as I said the last couple weeks, the greatest event in all of human history, the hinge of, of history, is this sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this communion in remembrance of him, let us really remember what it means and what it stands for. So that's an encouragement for me to you guys and, and also to myself. But those are really the four main views of communion in, in most Christian uh, churches and circles. So before we get back to the text, if anyone has any comments or questions, you can go ahead and say them now. If it's too detailed, then, then please see me afterwards, and, and we'll talk after that. Yes, Rick. That's a very good point. Yep, exactly right. All right, well, like I said, if you have any more questions, you can see me. If they're um, further on, there's plenty of resources that you can go and, and learn further. But let us get back to the text in our time remaining. Let me go ahead and read uh, verses 31 to 35, and we'll see how far we get. In verse 31 of Matthew 26, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all of you, or even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, that this night, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. 
And so said all the disciples. So we have here, as I do find this funny in retrospect, of the great apostle Peter and his boldness really for Christ, but in the wrong manner. So verse 31, Matthew and Mark put this event after they have left the upper room, while Luke and John put it before. Some considerations is some commentators think that either this happened twice, Christ predicted that they would deny him twice, or it happened as they were on the road. What is it here? Jesus predicts that in just a few short hours, the Apostle Peter and the rest of the, or the, rest of the disciples, the rest of the ten, would forsake him in his greatest hour of need and flee from him. And just a few short hours after this, presumably if this is late at night, if Christ is taking the middle of the night, perhaps three, four, five hours from now, a really short time frame for this prediction. You know, if I'm Peter, if I'm the other disciples, if someone's telling me five hours from now I'm going to deny Christ, you'd kind of be skeptical. I most certainly would not. But as we'll see here, even the greatest of them all fall. And the, what Jesus says in the second half of verse 31, he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, where God is going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There is imagery that two-thirds will be cut off and die, while one-third will be saved. God will deliver them through the fire. And let me, I'll just go ahead and read that real quick because it is pretty pertinent. Zechariah 13, 7. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read these three verses, 7, 8, 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. So I think Jesus is saying here is that they will be scattered but they will be brought back, and through this, they will be refined as gold. Uh, we can see here parallels where Judas falls. He's one of the two-thirds. He's fallen off. He's scattered, never to come back. But the other 11, even after falling away, being let off from the flock, will, be come back, will come back and be delivered from the fire. And Jesus even says that of Peter, I have prayed for you. Really, once you, have, uh, once you have returned, strengthen the brothers in the faith. Verse 32, Jesus says, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Passing a forward here, a couple of chapters. In Matthew 28, we have here the woman who worshipped the risen Lord. In verse 9 of 28, As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. In verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And this is a fulfillment of a few days later, this verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So we see a fulfillment of Christ's prediction of a prophecy in Matthew 28.10, where he will see them again his disciples in Galilee. 
verse 33. And after Jesus had said that they would be made to stumble, the great apostle Peter says this. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. So we have here, at first, Jesus addresses all of his disciples and predicts verse 56, where they will all forsake him and flee. But then Peter, usually being the mouth of the spokesman for the other ten disciples, makes a bold statement here in verse 33. He claims that even if the others will be made to stumble or to take offense at Christ, he, the Apostle Peter, will not be made to stumble. And a couple observations here. Albert Barnes in his commentary, I think, has a very helpful um, ideas here of Peter and really what's wrong with Peter here. And he says, Peter answered, though all men uh, are made to stumble, I will not. This confidence of Peter was entirely characteristic. We've seen this confidence in Peter in prior times. Uh, Sometimes it really helped out Peter. Other times he really had his foot in his mouth. He was ardent, sincere, and really attached to his master. Yet this declaration was made evidently, and here's three points. Yes, it was made from a true love for Jesus. So Peter's heart here is correct in that it was a true love for Jesus. He was sincere in that. But these two points are going against Peter. It was from too much reliance upon his own strength. And from the ignorance of himself and of the trials which he was soon to pass through. So we have one point, is Peter's heart is in the right direction. He is loving Christ and saying, if all others forsake you, Lord, my love for you is so that I will not forsake you. But two points are against Peter, is he's relying upon himself and his own strength, and he is relying or not understanding what is going to happen in just a few short hours. And what does this teach us? It most impressively teaches us that what? No strength of attachment to Jesus can justify such confidence or promise of fidelity made without dependence upon him. So what do we see here is that, yes, uh, Peter loved Christ, but it was out of a confidence and dependence upon himself. If we're going to make bold claims like that, it has to be a realization that it is not in our own strength. It is only in the power of Jesus Christ. And then... Number two, that all the promises to adhere to him should be made relying upon him for aid, as I just said. And then uh, that, we, uh, that we little known how feeble we are until we are tried. I think that's a big point there. Is we talk a bold talk, but once the fire gets hot, that's when we're really tested and we see and understand how feeble we are as men. And uh, kind of interesting here, too, is point number four Albert Barnes makes, that Christians may be left to great and disgraceful sins to show them of their weakness. Peter here is shown really how weak he is. And then Jesus says, I, I really like Luke's um, passage on this of the, uh, of the denial. I think it's uh, very important. And let me just go ahead and read Verses 31 and 32 here. And the Lord said to him, Simon, Simon. So in in Matthew 26, at first Jesus addresses all the disciples. But then he says, Simon, Simon, or Peter, Peter. Like verily, verily, this is intimate. This is personal. Peter, indeed, 
Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So what are two things we can take from this here of Peter's denial? Is that the devil against ourselves, we're no match for him. He can eat us, he can chew us, and he can spit us out. What is it generally known is that the greatest theologian is the devil. He knows all the answers and he knows all the tricks. And we are no match for him. But really, what is the most important thing in this section? As we see here, this is why I love the passage of Luke in verse 32, the beginning of it. But Christ says to him, but I have prayed for you. Isn't that remarkable? I have prayed for you. Peter, you're relying on your own strength. You're relying on your own intellect. And Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I, the God-man, Jesus Christ, have prayed for you. How amazing is that? And I've kind of thought the difference here between Peter and Judas. Really, all the disciples at one point or another forsake the Lord. Judas does it completely. But really, as far as I can see, what is the difference here between Judas and Peter? Is that it appears, well, Jesus did not pray for Judas. Judas was fulfilling that of the Old Testament. He was going to do what his hard heart was going to do. But what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Is they both denied and forsook Christ, but Christ prayed for Peter. Isn't that remarkable? They both fell and they both denied Christ, but Christ prayed for Peter. And I think that's a great encouragement for us because I think we can all think, maybe even in this week where we, not outwardly, but inwardly at least, passively deny Christ. But we have that hope that right now, the God-man, the mediator, is praying for us. And if there was one second where he wasn't praying for us, we'd all fall down like Judas and never get back up. And that's why I love uh, Luke's take of it, is those six words there, but I have prayed for you. Again, let me flick back, flip back here to Matthew 26, verse 34. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus here predicts the personal denial of Peter right before three in the morning when the rooster would crow. So usually the rooster, I think we've all heard roosters crow, how obnoxious and annoying they are. But three in the morning is usually when the rooster crowed. And what does Christ here predict? Is that Peter, before 3 o'clock in the morning, he would deny Christ three times. Again, think of that. Presumably here, we're in the late evening, early night, so maybe 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, not exactly sure of the time frame. But Jesus is telling Peter here and the disciples that before 3 o'clock in the morning, just four short hours, you're not going to deny me once, You're not going to deny me twice. You are going to deny me three times. You would have to imagine how Peter is repulsed by that. Lord, you're not saying I'm going to deny you once or twice, but three times? No way in the world. If Peter was a betting man, he would have never bet that he would deny Christ three times. But again, it just goes to understand or show that they do not understand what is going to happen. In verse 35... Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I think Mark has a, Mark 14, 31 does a great job detailing what Peter says here. 
verse 31 of Mark 14. Mark records here. But he, that is Peter, spoke more vehemently. So Peter denies that he's going to deny once. And then Mark adds this word vehemently in there. So you can imagine Peter. He's getting upset at this point. He's vehemently saying, Lord, I will not deny you. He's beginning to be insulted here. And that's why I like that word vehement. It really shows Peter's characteristics here. His self-confidence in himself that he will not fail. And he says the rest of the verse, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. There's that vehemence there. And then what do we see, what do we see here at the end of it? And so said all the disciples. So Peter as we see throughout the New Testament, is the boldest of them. He's really the mouth of the disciples. And as you can see, Peter is probably standing right next to Christ, you know, confronting Christ, saying he will not deny, and the other ten disciples are behind him, you know, shaking their head like, yes, man, Lord, we won't deny you either. We're exactly like Peter. But in verse 56, we see that they all forsook Christ and fled. And so we come to the end of that. If uh, Before we continue on here, if anyone has any comments or questions, go ahead and say them now. Exactly. We can't throw stones at Peter. <laughs> yes, Newt. Very much. I think, uh, to your point, we'll see that here as we get into the garden, how critical the hour is, but yet how it appears lax the disciples are. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Very much. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, Teresa, and to Teresa's point is, I think we would all say similar in the various in certain uh, circumstances. This is not for you. I won't deny you. Famous last words. Yes, Uncle Ray. I think even looking in a secular world, not even in the biblical standpoint, how many people do we see who are in the pinnacle of their power, and it appears like just a few short weeks later, they've completely lost or they're in jail? It's, uh, I think there really is here. Peter's in the pinnacle. He's really at the top, and his self-confidence is in himself. And just four or five hours later, he's at the very low. Very good observations. And we won't get into it too much. We only have a couple minutes left, but let's start with a prayer in the garden. Let me, read, uh, let me read verses 36 to 38. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here. And watch with me. Verse 36, they arrive at Gethsemane. So they come from the upper room, and they arrive at this place called Gethsemane. And the Hebrew word for Gethsemane means oil press. So presumably there was a bunch of olive, uh, or a bunch of, yeah, olive vines and stuff around there. And this is where Christ will pray 
as he is entering his final hours here before his crucifixion. Uh, MacArthur notes in his commentaries, this place is apparently where Christ often went with his disciples. It was just across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, so Jerusalem was probably still in view in the distance, not too far from Jerusalem. And MacArthur said that Christ often went here, so that it is likely Judas knew the approximate vicinity of where Christ would be. You know, that's kind of an interesting standpoint here is Christ went to a place that he was well familiar with. And as he said time and time again, my time is at hand, and we'll see here at the end of it, my hour is at hand. Christ could have went completely to some obscure place where Judas would would have never found him. But Christ fulfilling all things, his time at hand goes to a place where the disciples and Judas knew where he was going to be. Just something to, just something to think about here. Christ not running from his adversaries, but knowing what his mission was and the fulfillment of what he was here to do on earth. And then we see here where Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. So probably on the outskirts of this garden or this area, you have a big entrance and we see where eight of the disciples are left. And then in in verse 37, we see this time and again throughout Matthew and the other Gospels. He took with him Peter and James and John. So we see this time time and again is, yes, we have the the 11 disciples. At this point, Judas is gone. We have the 11 disciples. They're the inner circle of Christ. They're his good friends. But then we see also is that Peter, James, and John enjoy a special fellowship, a special intimacy with Christ. Where else are these three given the privilege to see the glory of Christ? Transfiguration. It doesn't appear that the other disciples were able to see it. But these three, Peter, James, and John, are given the special privilege to see Christ transfigured on the mount. They're given the special privilege, at least while they're awake, as we'll see here in a couple of minutes, Christ praying and and begging with the Father of his final hours on earth. And I think an observation here, too, is in, in Luke 22, Luke is the only one to record this, but apparently when they're in the upper room, there's a debate amongst themselves of who's the greatest. So you see kind of this power structure, this, uh, of this structure inside the disciples. And I think being a natural human being, you know, if you're, if you're Philip or if you're uh, Andrew, you see Peter, James, and John even more so with Christ I can't help but think that there had to be some jealousy there. You know, just, you know, why, why do these three get even more special privileges? And it, this doesn't say it in the Bible, but you can't help but think, you know, Peter, he knows, they, they have to know that there's a special fellowship. Who knows what this debate was in the upper room of who's the greatest? Perhaps it was Peter reminiscing or James or John reminiscing saying, hey, you know, we get to go off on Christ or with Christ a couple times and enjoy things that you don't get to enjoy. So, again, that's, that's not in Scripture, but kind of just me reading into it, just the natural inclinations of man. I, I could say I'd probably have similar feelings. But then another observation, too, is while they're in the upper room, John records the disciple whom he loved, presumably John, got to lean his head on the bosom of Christ. So we have the eleven, we have the three, then it appears this special relationship between Christ and John. And if you remember when Christ is on the cross, he tells Mary, look at your son. And then he tells John, look at your mother. It's just, it's just 
kind of interesting how this happens. Even, even Jesus Christ, the God-man, had, had special friendships and, and special friends uh, among himself. So we see here, and how would you feel it, too, as if you're the other eight disciples, you get left at the gate, but then Peter, James, and John are able to continue on further to go with Jesus as he prays to the Father. It's just, a, just an interesting uh, observation there. And then at the end of verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then, uh, this, this is my last verse here real quick. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Christ understood what the time was. It wasn't the cross, the men, the betrayal, but the hour was drawing near where the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him on that cross. So we'll stop there, and uh, my dad will actually be doing Sunday school next week, uh, and we'll pick this up in two weeks, and we'll continue on with this. Thank you very much.